Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Martini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show is coming up right next. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. This is Talk Radio to Thrive By. We have got an incredible show for you today. And I have to tell you, I wake up some days and I'm a, I just, I just look at my life and I think, oh my goodness, you know, this is such an incredible place to be and to be able to speak with some of the people that I get to speak with and then to be in front of all of you amazing, incredible, magnificent listeners. Wow. I don't know if it gets any better than this. Tonight's show is, um, I've been so looking forward to having a conversation with my very special guest today, Michael Meacher. He's joining the show because there is a phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal conversation that he and I are going to have. And let me just tell you a little bit uh, about what we're going to talk about. First of all, let me tell you, he is the author of an incredible book, Destination of the Species, The Riddle of Human Existence. And today, I get to chat with him about the so many things that he brings to bear, brings to mind, and so many questions that he helps all of us ask and unravel the mystery. So today, he's joining us. But beyond the author of this book, he has been a Labor Member of Parliament for Oldham West in the north of England since 1970. He stood for the leadership of the Labor Party in 2007 was first elected to the British Parliament in 1970 after studying at Oxford University and the London School of Economics. And his journey, you're going to hear from him personally about, but whether it is as a junior minister under the prime ministers, Harold Wilson and James Callan, or as the author that he is today, he certainly has been able to explore the questions of life, humanity, and what it all stands for. Beyond all of that, he is a long-term campaigner on the issue of climate change. He brings both the passion, the intelligence, and much more, wow, the wisdom to a conversation that many people have really forgotten to have these days. And so I am thrilled that he is joining us here today to carry this conversation forward to a level that perhaps it has not had the opportunity to be at before. Michael, thank you so much. It is such an honor and a pleasure to have you on the Dr. Pat Show. Well, it's the most wonderful introduction, and I'm extremely privileged to be on your show. Well, I'm going to start out uh, probably in a little bit of a different direction than you thought. I barely scratched the surface in talking about your life's journey, and there's so much more to say. But what I want to ask you is, Given all that you've done and all that you believe in, what are some of the challenges? What are some of the obstacles that you've had to overcome to bring you to this very moment? Well, I uh, 
have actually had quite a privileged life. Um, I was, I've never known poverty. I've never known unemployment. Uh, my parents were pretty poor. Uh, my father uh, did little work in the course of his life because he was unable to, and I was lucky to be brought up uh, in a good education system, uh, and as you've indicated, to go to Oxford. So I've been very lucky. Um, I originally intended, uh, as a result of my experiences, as you've said, at Oxford and later the London School of Economics, uh, to uh, undertake social work. Uh, I initially intended uh, to become a probation officer because I was uh, very concerned about issues in criminal justice. Uh, I was uh, persuaded uh, to get further training, and as a result of that, uh, I became increasingly interested in trying to bring about social change um, politically uh, because uh, one can either do it directly through social work uh, or uh, by trying to change the fundamental rules which uh, govern society. And I have always been very deeply committed to that, to the, the way in which the power structure in the wider society affects the lives of, of us all and affects uh, very large numbers of people in a very adverse and damaging and hurtful way. Uh, so that is what uh, I have tried to do. Um, I suppose the main obstacle is that people who take on a view of life um, and an attitude of uh, the goals and aspirations which are quite contrary uh, to the prevailing wisdom or the prevailing and dominant philosophy of uh, the, the ruling elite uh, find themselves constantly under pressure uh, constantly vilified, uh, constantly rejected. Um, it's not an easy path, um, but it's one that uh, many people have taken, and many of the views I have are unconventional um, and not, I think, widely supported and probably uh, strongly rejected, both politically uh, and in terms of uh, the, the, the spiritual and, and wider view of life, which I express in the book. But I repeat, uh, compared to some people, I have been uh, very fortunate in my life. I am very grateful for that, and I'm very conscious of the need to return some of the, the gifts and endowments that I have had. Uh, so I don't want to give the impression that I've had to fight against a lot of obstacles. I've been very fortunate, very lucky, um, but I believe that out there, both in our own societies and in the wider world, there are millions and millions of people who suffer grievously, and I've always wanted to do more for them. And that's why I'm so thrilled to be talking with you, because there is, a, there is an energy and a force, I think, to be reckoned with for people that really are coming out and talking about what's happening in the world right now and how to become advocates for some folks that may not really have whatever they need to have to be the wherewithal for themselves at the moment. So that's why I was thrilled to talk with you as well, because there's a bigger conversation, and there's something that happens, something that happens to folks that really stand for other people. And there's a level of truth that comes through in their lives and their work. And that's what I wanted to ask you about. It's almost as if that you have had to write about or become a spokesperson for the tough conversations that 
many people are thinking about right now, but very few people are finding the voice to actually speak. And I wanted to ask you about that. When we talk about destination of the species and the riddle of human existence, are we talking about something that is debatable or something that you have found to be of a truth? Well, um, that is a very good question, and I would answer it like this. We live today, I think, in, a, in the West in a secular age mm. where the, the old certainties underpinned by religious dogma and unquestioning morality have largely faded, I think much more so in Europe probably than in the States, uh, to be replaced by a pervasive consumer materialism uh, enthralled to wealth and bling and celebrity, but equally devoid of much sense of purpose. And I have constantly asked myself, and I, I suspect many people do, what do I really believe in? Are our lives simply a, a temporary rite of passage which quickly vanishes away with little or no meaning uh, in the relentless treadmill of the universe over billions of years? Or is there some greater order of things which gives meaning to the human species? And if so, and I think there is, where is the evidence that I can safely rely on which is consistent with all the enormous range of scientific data that has accumulated uh, particularly in the last 300 years. Now, unlike some more fortunate persons who've had an overpowering experience which has given them an unshakable inner certainty, uh, I have never had uh, such an experience. Um, I've always had a, a lifelong passion for science. I've read extremely widely uh, in it, and I think I'm very competent in many areas of science, particularly cosmology. And given that reality has to be one single indivisible unity, I increasingly turn my mind to how it all fitted together. Now, I know some people have taken the view uh, that modern sciences disprove religion, but I think that is clearly a category error. Science and religion reflect two entirely different paradigms of experience so that neither can invalidate the other. They're two mm. quite different things. On the other hand, they should be consistent, and science can certainly massively expand the wonderment of the religious message, and that's what led me to write the book. Well, I love what you're talking about, and I love the way you've just explained that, because you're right, uh, and, and so brilliantly put. Um, we spend so much time looking at science and religion as being at odds, that we've yet to really find the mystery of the interaction or relationship between them. And what I wanted to ask you about is, is it our own egocentric, our own selves, whether it's fear or otherwise, that would have us uh, try to create this ongoing battle between science and religion as opposed to looking at it in the way that you've just described? Well, I think it is important uh, to see the relationship between the two. Science has uncovered uh, that the world has been constructed with mind-boggling precision. Uh, in order to produce the stable universe we know, the balance between the outward 
uh, original explosive force at Big Bang and the gravitational forces pulling back the galaxies is precise within an accuracy of one part in one followed by 60 noughts. That is absolutely staggering. All mm. the particle masses, the force strengths, the fundamental constants interact with unbelievable precision without which there would be no universe conducive to life. And in just one more figure, which I think is very impressive, the mathematician Roger Penrose uh, has calculated the likelihood of such a universe being random at one chance in one followed by 123 noughts, a degree of unlikelihood verging on infinity. Now, that is a staggering fact. Uh, and one has to ask how that can possibly be the case unless the universe is designed. It is purposeful. Uh, it is not random. And there is a lot of other evidence. Uh, it's regularly asserted by the neo-Darwinians that the evolution of life forms is determined by gene mutations driven by blind chance. But in fact, the latest evidence suggests that early life on Earth was in fact driven for billions of years by cooperative networking, not randomly by purposeless mutations. And there's other evidence. The, the mechanisms uh, indicate uh, a purposeful dynamics at work in the natural world. A convergence can be seen in biological systems leading down multiple paths towards similar higher-order outcomes and more advanced creatures, which, of course, is the way uh, in which, in the end, uh, after four billion years, the human species evolved. Gaia theory uh, posits a positive global feedback process, including between living creatures and non-living environment, which again is an amazing fact which has been uncovered, which keeps the Earth habitable in the face of external shocks. I mean, all of these, I think, so far from producing a uh, a confrontation between science and religion uh, increased the wonderment of the religious message in the most astonishing way. And I think that helps us even from a, a scientific as opposed to a preconceived religious view uh, to see the world as it is, that it is uh, absolutely amazing in a design manner. It really does open up the conversation about that. Uh, for so many people that believe in sort of this random process of things happening, and yet we're hearing more and more, especially as we approach 2012, and of course what people may or may not believe about that, you know, we're hearing more and more conversation about the pattern of things, the evolution of things, you know, the destiny of things. And, and so what you talk about in this book allows us to really explore this almost organized way of being that many people say doesn't exist. But yet in our everyday lives, we strive at some very basic point of existence to be that organized. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes, I do. And I very much agree with it. Um, what I have tried to do is to look at, across the range of uh, disciplines, physics, chemistry, um, biochemistry, uh, sociobiology, environmentalism, spirituality, all the, the main aspects of the human existence, and to see what those linkages are. 
And it's, it's only when you do look at the world uh, around us uh, and, and you, you see, as you look more deeply uh, into it, that there are certain nodal points, certain key points, which illuminate the landscape, which is very easy to avoid. I, I, let me just give an example of that. I don't know yes, whether you're please. familiar. Are you familiar with the famous painting, The Betrothal of Arnold Feeney by Jan no, van Eyck? No, I'm not. I'm not. Oh, well, well, let me tell you. Uh, it doesn't matter. Um, it is. Uh, it was painted in the 15th century. It's a rather formalized picture with the two principal figures, the man and the woman, rather stiff and lifeless, I thought, and with no vitality or any special meaning in it. Uh, however, I was soon put right about it, and I was stunned. It is, in fact, an extraordinary painting. Jan van Eyck was, in fact, the inventor of oil painting. And, and it has exquisite detail. And when you look closely uh, at it, it imparts a whole new understanding of what he was conveying. The mirror on the wall behind the figures, which at the first glance I hardly even noticed, contains in the minutest detail a reflection of the whole scene, including the two witnesses to the event, one of them the artist himself, with all the precision of a modern digital photograph, that the first time I missed it completely. And the point I'm making is that I come to the conclusion that exactly the same applies to the way in which we look at the world around us and the amazing story that science has uncovered. It's very easy to miss it. Uh, and I think the question one has to ask all the time is what is, what, are, what is this whole picture, this landscape, actually telling us? What does it mean? Uh, and it's being able to see that uh, I think then uh, gives meaning to uh, the, the, the whole spectrum uh, of our knowledge. What you're bringing up is so important, and what I want to say about that is I get more often than not on my show listeners that call in in search of what is my purpose, what am I meant to do, what is the next thing, what is the world really about, uh, what can we do to do things differently? Change becoming a major theme, but yet there is a level of what seems to be confusion around what is next to do. So my question is um, around human beings and, and whether or not we have the ability to be accountable for our own species. Do you see what I'm saying? Uh, yes, I do. That, of course, uh, is a, uh, a, a, a question of ultimate, uh, mm. and it's ultimately a religious question. That is, of course, mm -hmm. different um, from a scientific question. Religious experience, mm -hmm. I think, is very real. It's validated mm -hmm. not by scientific verification, but from quite different sources. The, the, and I think there are very powerful sources for those who decry religion. I think they should consider, first of all, the awesome sense of numinous power which is found almost universally in human societies. Uh, the revelations proclaimed, of course, by the founders and prophets of the world's great religions. Then there is the ineffable witness of the mystics, who, in my opinion, probably get nearer to the ultimate reality than anyone. And, of course, the authenticity of overpowering personal experience which transforms lives. I've not had that, but a number of people have, and it is very, very meaningful. And it is that which gives them a sense of purpose and direction. 
But I'm one of those who've not been in that uh, position. I decided to write the book deliberately from the the standpoint of the spiritual agnostic, if I can use that to Moran, not from the point of a preconceived and settled prejudice that mm-hmm. sought to persuade everyone from a position of unchallengeable certainty, but rather from where I think most people in modern society are, which is namely uncertain, sceptical, unwilling to make any intellectual or emotional commitment without explicitly being shown the evidence and being convinced it is strong enough to believe in. That's the standpoint from which I wrote the book, uh, and I hope uh, that it uh, it carries weight. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, what is the relevant evidence available to us if we're asking what is the purpose? I mean, the book systematically surveys each of the critical dimensions, the origin some 13 billion years ago, and the evolution of the universe, the formation of the galaxies and our solar system, including the Earth, the possible origins of life some four billion years ago in the extremely inhospitable conditions of the early Earth, the fantastic subsequent proliferation of exotic life forms leading through a chain of the most unlikely improbabilities, but perhaps inevitable convergence to the human species, and then an assessment of the intellectual, cultural, moral, and spiritual uniqueness of human beings. That's my attempt uh, to put it all together and to see if there is an overriding and dominant pattern within it. And my conclusion is, yes, there is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of times, and especially here recently, I think people are really questioning and seeing a dominant pattern in in life itself. I mean, there's so many things, don't you think, Michael, that we point to in our lives that show dominant patterns in themselves, even the smallest, the teeniest, oh, most fragile, microscopic microbe, there seems to be some level of pattern. So then the question then becomes, what makes it so difficult for us to then translate or Hmm, how should I say it, understand that perhaps the micro may represent a macro even though we cannot physically see it. Well, that is undoubtedly the case, and you've put your finger on something which again has been uncovered only in the last hundred years. Uh, We've always assumed uh, that the level at which we perceive the world through our five senses is what is the reality. But the uncovery of uh, quantum mechanics um, and nanotechnology and the very tiny world which we can't see but which through scientific experiments we know is there and which actually uh, is the the ultimate components uh, and the foundation of the world that we see. But it has enormous influence uh, on... uh, the material world which we experience, just as at the other end of the spectrum, it is very difficult for us to understand the the size of the universe and the nature of uh, the uh, you know the processes which determine uh, the wider universe well beyond our ken. It is absolutely staggering, is it not, that we are in one planet, which eight planets within our solar system, going around one sun, one mainstream star, that star is one of 100 to 200 billion stars in one galaxy. 
and it is reckoned that there are a hundred billion galaxies. I mean, this is absolutely, utterly mind-blowing. Mm. Uh, and it, once again, it is a pattern which we have to take into account in trying to reach our opinion of what is it all about? What is this telling us? And it is certainly telling us, I think, that uh, the universe is absolutely so vast. There is no question of human beings being at the center of it. I think ever since Galileo and ever since... Uh, the Middle Ages or the Enlightenment that followed, I think we've realized that. I think human beings have a very important role, but we are not at the, the center of it. We're not the whole purpose of existence. Uh, I think for three centuries, science has progressively narrowed the significance of humans against the almost infinite backdrop of the universe. And maybe it is even suggested an almost endless series of universes. But the latest evidence is pointing now towards an ultimate reality, certainly not of the human race as the summit of evolution, but of an overarching cosmic plan of which we may well be a key part. And I think that's very significant. That's really the conclusion of my book. Well, and let's talk about that for a minute because it really does ask us to put on a different hat, if I may, if I may say that, because if we're not the center of the universe, and I'll just say it like that because I think sometimes we think we are, then we actually may be nothing more than a piece of a cosmic puzzle that is being used in a way that ultimately leads to a much bigger plan that none of us really can comprehend. Am I, am I off on that? I, no, I think that's, again, entirely correct. Um, and it's also false, of course, for us to assume that whatever we know today is the finality yes. of human right. comprehension. Uh, the right. truth is, of course, uh, the opposite. Uh, if you think what uh, science has uncovered or what people thought was the truth about 100 years ago compared to what we know now, we have enormously increased the range of our understanding and it is surely rational to assume that in 100 years or 200 or 500 years, if we last that long, um, that it'll look very, very different again. All that one can do is, within one's own generation, to try and put all the pieces together and to try and understand uh, what it all means. The fact is, it's not just uh, that religion, of course, uh, to many people remains very uncertain. So does science. At present, science remains stuck at certain questions. What lay behind the original singularity uh, when our universe began, the so-called Big Bang? How does one explain the fantastic degrees of fine-tuning to which I've referred, the fact that the universe is fine-tuned to an almost unbelievable degree? Um, how do we explain dark matter? We know that dark matter uh, constitutes about 96% of the universe, but we don't actually know what it is. Uh, and how do we adjust to the rediscovery of final causes uh, in terms of self-organization and holistic properties in astronomy, biology, and computing? I mean, all of these are questions which science at the moment has no answer for. Uh, so uh, you are right. One has to try and uh, put all the pieces together, but it is a cosmic puzzle, and it, we can only dimly understand it. Well, one of the things that you talk about in the book, and I, I would be remiss not having that conversation with you, is the question you ask, are human beings unique? We certainly think we are unique, Michael. <laughs> we 
we do think we are unique. We think we're special. We think we have some level of superiority over the other species. And yet, when you take a look at our pop culture, and what I mean by that is the way that we creatively explain ourselves in the context of what we don't know in the universe, we then become the inferior of a species. Anything we talk about or think about in terms of the outer world of other beings, we are always coming out to be that which is less than. So the question is, in your book, how do you answer the question, are human beings unique? There are millions of other uh, planets within the universe we know. Um, we certainly have identified uh, a huge number already and probably many, many times more will be gradually uncovered. The trouble is, of course, one can't see uh, planets because they don't have light unlike stars and we can only see it by reflection uh, or uh, by the way in which planets alter um, the light which we receive from the, the stars. So, but we are uncovering more and more of them. And, uh, I mean, we certainly have every reason to expect that there may be water on Mars, for example, and water is one of the components of life, and it is quite, quite likely that there is life in some form or other on Mars, for example, certainly not on Venus, which it would be impossible for life to be on Venus. It's absolutely boiling hot with raging winds of 200 miles an hour. Um, and where lead would melt. So it, there are many planets which are totally inhospitable, but many, many will undoubtedly have some forms of life. But it is wrong, of course, to think that they're sort of little human beings or uh, something like us. I mean, it has taken four billion years, 4,000 million years to evolve to human beings. Human beings have only been on this planet in the last, a uh, quarter of a million years, uh, something recognizably human, Homo sapiens, as compared to the apes from which we came. Uh, and that is very, very, very late. In the 24-hour clock, we're in the last one or two seconds. So there's been an enormous um, process uh, of evolution before us. And the same will, of course, apply in other uh, on other planets, if there is life, it'll be life at very different stages and it will have converged down different paths to ours. But certainly on our planet, we are unique. Uh, we clearly have characteristics uh, in culture, well, not only our intelligence, but our culture, our morality, our spirituality, our uh, consciousness, which as far as we can see is not shared by any other species. The question of whether we use that wisely <laughs> is another matter. We are the most destructive of all species. We're the only species, I think, which actually kills um, other members of our own species. Uh, and uh, although we have enormous um, cleverness, ingenuity, and technology, whether we have wisdom is uh, another matter. But... Uh, up to this point, certainly, there's no question we are unique. But that uniqueness, I think, could be exercised with uh, a much greater wisdom than we do. So what do you think it will it take? Will it take a, a disaster far beyond anything we can imagine for uh, us to be able to look at ourselves as unified as a species? And, I, as species, and, I, and what I mean by that is, 
you, you know, after all, when we look at each other, the one thing that we really do have in common is that we are human beings. And yet, if we look at the, the global landscape, we see individual pockets, almost as if people were on their own planet, so to speak. And so the question then becomes, you know, is it going to take this connectedness of all of us at some very, very global level to to actually forward our evolution, so to speak? Well... Uh, I, I certainly think that um, modern uh, developments, modern technology and um, further scientific uh, uh, discoveries have enabled the world to be brought together to a much greater degree than has ever been the case. Uh, but we are very bad, it seems to me, at organizing our world. Um, uh, as we all know, uh, a billion or more people continually go to bed hungry. Uh, it's not as though there isn't enough food in the world. There is far more food uh, than is necessary to feed everyone comfortably, but it's extremely maldistributed. Poverty and wealth remain extraordinarily unequal. Uh, hostility uh, across the world between nations um, remains every bit as dramatic and dangerous and fearful uh, as it was two or three thousand years ago. Um, I mean, there are so many, and, and on this question of climate change, which of course is extremely controversial, uh, yes. particularly I think in the States, um, but uh, there is a, a very real risk that, uh, and it's certainly a, a risk which I believe is real, um, that we are bringing about a situation in our world in which within a few hundred years, uh, it is possibly shorter than that, uh, a very significant proportion of the uh, human population, which is likely to rise to about 10, 9, 10 billion by 2050, a uh, very short time, uh, will not be able to sustain itself because of the lack of um, uh, food supply, uh, the, the lack of adequate water supplies, um, and a breakdown in energy supplies. I mean, all of these are matters which it is within our capability to control uh, and to order better. Uh, but it does seem to me that we continue with a paradigm in our civilization uh, which is pretty self-destructive. And as you said earlier, it is only when we face catastrophe in the face uh, that ultimately human beings change. And I think we are, sadly, and I don't like saying this, I think we are moving uh, irrevocably towards that at the present time. Whether we have uh, the wisdom and the rationality to draw back um, before disaster really strikes us uh, is, a, is a very open question. Well, I mean, then we, it comes back to the conversation about whether or not uh, the human species, you know, mankind, is really in control of its own destiny. And, and, and actually, uh, it's incredible to think, because right now, and I know you know this, Michael, and for those of you just tuning in, let me tell you, I am so thrilled and honored to have Michael Meacher joining us here today. Uh, he is absolutely, uh, you know, incredible. The book that he has written, Destination of the Species, which we'll talk about in a minute, The Riddle of Human Existence. We have within our realm, even now, the technology to literally reverse some of the damage we've done. 
and I mean that in so many ways. For example, we now have technology to produce water from the atmosphere, pure atmospheric water, and to do it in a way that doesn't harm the earth. We have so many things available to us. Certain countries, I know Canada is phenomenal in terms of their program to provide solar panels for homes. But yet we're still mankind. And what I mean by that is it it takes more than a few people to say, look, this is an important thing to change. So what's the wake-up call for us? I think the wake-up call, uh, sadly, is um, when things begin to go very badly wrong uh, and where we are forced to change. You see, I, I entirely agree with you that uh, we've uncovered all sorts of um, very clever, ingenious ways of providing for human needs. Uh, at the same time, however, um, the, the, the forces within our society are very strong. The vested interests are exceedingly powerful. Various um, industries... Uh, the energy industries, the uh, transport automobile um, uh, industries, the chemical industries, all of these are exceedingly powerful and they have enormous political and economic muscle and they want to continue uh, with maintaining a, a system in which they have a dominant interest. Now, that may well have uh, implications for other nations on Earth uh, it may well um, uh, prevent uh, the development of a more harmonious society, um, or certainly one which is um, more equal, more fair, um, more at peace. Uh, all of these things uh, are, are possible. Uh, there is no question. But human beings um, have an, uh, an aggressive uh, drive for dominance and power, which is been very clear throughout history. I mean, history is really largely the story of that. Uh, it's very destructive. It's very aggressive. Um, it achieves uh, uh, an amazing expansion of wealth and power. Uh, but at the same time, whether it actually improves happiness, whether it increases peace, whether it increases harmony, whether it increases happiness, is a very different issue. And I still think we've got very fundamental questions uh, to answer in that respect. And if you say, what's actually going to make us do it? I think it's because the current system is really in some ways driving into the buffers. Uh, the energy shortage, uh, the approaching era of peak oil, uh, when our civilization is overwhelmingly dependent on oil for almost everything, for our transport system, for industry, for agriculture, and indeed for fighting wars. Uh, and we're probably at the peak of oil extraction and consumption at the present time. And although it'll continue, it's only been going for 150 years, which is a very short time. And uh, we certainly haven't got another 150 years because the rate of consumption is increasing all the time with the development of the Chinese and Indian uh, societies uh, increasing their development and given the size of their population. The availability uh, of oil, and uh, although it'll be longer, gas and other fossil fuels is limited. And to go back to a society in which those are no longer available or very scarce is, is I think, one of the warning 
signals that we need to pay attention to and which we're going to have to pay attention to. Um, so I, would like, I, would, I still passionately believe in a world which can be uh, better, which can be uh, more understanding of human need and less desirous of uh, expanding um, wealth uh, at a dramatic rate uh, for tiny proportions of only part of certain societies and, and seeing a much better spread of opportunity for human beings and a greater realization also that although we are the dominant species, we are destroying other species at a rate a thousand times greater uh, than any previous time in history. I mean, these are all very, very worrying signs. We've had five mass extinctions in the course of the Earth that we know about in the last uh, five, six hundred million years. But this is the first time when one of the species, namely us, is actually creating the possibility of a mass extinction. Uh, and I think that is the, uh, the key pivotal point which is going to force a reconsideration of the nature of our civilization. Mm. Uh, Michael, uh, you know, uh, this is um, for, I think, so many of us. Um, being able to absorb and read and take in. And for me, I have more questions than we have time to even cover during the show today. But there is so much that you have really brought to the surface. So many questions, so many answers. Yet I, I still wonder, and I would love to ask you this, is there still a great question that remains to be, to be answered? You know, what is the great unanswered question? at the moment in your mind? <laughs> uh, several. Um, <laughs> certainly not just one. Um, but I, I am writing a, another book um, which is rather grandiosely entitled What is Human Life For? Uh. Uh, if indeed, let me say, it is for anything. Um, I think that in my view, it's the greatest question of all. Uh, it does ask the question that we all want an answer to. What are we here for? What are we seeking to do? Uh, now, I don't think there is a sort of rigid, preconceived answer to that. Um, and if there were, I don't think any of us feeble human beings would be able uh, to give it. I think it's a, a much, much greater, more profound question than human beings are likely to readily be able to answer. But I do think it's a question that needs to be posed. And I think it does force us to think about the nature of our life, the way we lead it, what we're trying to do. Um, and what are the the goals and aspirations of our society, and are those the right ones? And these are the sorts of questions which I think we need to ask in every generation, because mm -hmm. um, civilization and science and technology is constantly changing the parameters of our life, uh, but those fundamental questions remain in all societies, in all generations, and I think... They don't get enough attention. We, we spend so much time about in, in wealth creation, which is certainly, of course, very important. I don't want to underplay it. But it's not the finality uh, of human life. And I think there are more profound and greater goals and aspirations which we should be thinking about. Because ultimately, wealth creation doesn't by itself produce happiness. It doesn't produce peace. It doesn't produce harmony. 
Uh, and I think those are the greatest issues. And and honestly, for a lot of people, sort of the the greatest uh, dis what I want to say disruption in one's daily life, this incongruency between the day-to-day of what we do and the joy and the peace that we so long for in so many it's it's almost as if it's elusive and 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 we don't know how to find it and it's been missing or it's never existed and and i wanted to to ask you is this separation a separation almost akin to the way we previously talked about science and I will say religion, but I'll also say science and spirituality. Well, I, the question you posed is, is really the fundamental religious one. I mean, those people who do have a religious faith would entirely understand the point you were making and see that as the separation of human beings from God. It is mm. no longer fashionable in much of um, societies, particularly, as I say, in Europe, uh, mm-hmm. to talk about God. Um, God is seen as something which we have somehow uh, grown out of, we somehow uh, pass by, uh, who isn't necessary. I think that, again, is another of our uh, supreme mistakes, and I think the the arrogance uh, which has been created by this sense of power that we have uh, has, I think, destroyed that sense of humility and that uh, sense of uh, real, genuine understanding of uh, our, the, the nature of human life on Earth. Uh, I think there is something greatly missing in our civilization, and it is that uh, that sense of purpose, that sense of meaning. That's the single most important thing. And I think it's not just about uh, egocentric uh, creation of greater wealth for oneself. I mean... Many people find that satisfying. I don't think it is all that satisfying, Up, uh, certainly not beyond a certain point. What is far more important is commitment to a wider cause, commitment to a, a bigger purpose outside oneself. Uh, that, I think, is far more rewarding and satisfying. Uh, and ultimately, of course, those who have religious faith believe uh, that the, the ultimate uh, process is, is the giving of oneself to God, that sense of being caught up in uh, a, a cosmic significance um, and being uh, caught up within the relationship with a personal God. Now, I've been very careful uh, in the book uh, not to make an easy assumption that uh, creation, of course, means that God was there at the beginning, and if there's a sense of purpose and design in the universe, that immediately means the hand of God is everywhere. Some people may make that interpretation. Uh, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying one needs to be very cautious, and it is a, it's a judgment that people make. Um, but I think it is uh, the way in which we need to look uh, at uh, our existence and what it is for. Well, there is some comfort, and 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 I think you can relate to this. There is some comfort for people to believe that there is there is a God that is lining everything up perfectly in such a amazing organized way, and has done so, uh, you know, for the greater good of mankind, so to speak. I think there's some comfort in that for people to believe that, uh, than to believe that there is no God. Well, 
as I say, that is uh, a matter for each person's experience in their own life. Yes, exactly. Uh, What I do believe, though, is that um, if one does look at the whole panorama, it it isn't altogether clear. The evidence is not all in one direction. We all know there is a problem of pain, of suffering in the world, uh, problems of war, uh, and the obvious question, why doesn't God intervene if God is able right. to do so? Uh, there have been terrible sufferings through history, and indeed those who have uh, often espoused a, a religious conviction uh, in the Crusades, uh, the conquistadors in their conquest of um, the uh, South and Central Americas, uh, in the 16th century, I mean, there have been, and of course, um, the the Nazis um, uh, during the last Great War. I mean, all of these um, uh, are very difficult to explain if uh, God is um, presiding over a world in which He is ordering. The truth is that human freedom uh, of will, the the the, the, the capacity to choose between good and evil seems to be unlimited Uh, and we have seen in the last century not only the flowering of uh, science and technology to an unprecedented degree but a degree of destructiveness and a degree of evil uh, which is also again without precedent in human history I mean has to bear in mind that there is um, tremendous tension between the desire for good, uh, the desire for peace and harmony, uh, the desire for uh, a, a common experience of, of hope and love uh, between people, and at the same time, uh, the drive towards war, destruction and evil, which is on a, a, a quite phenomenal scale. Uh, so it's 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 not easy to reach uh, a single view and how people put all that together and the judgment they put on it is a matter for them i touch on this in the book but i don't think again there are any ultimate answers i think these Mm -hmm. are the questions uh, which cannot i think be finally answered but which need to be addressed which need to be thought about which because they are very profound, and for each individual person, they can lead to, I think, a, a much deeper and greater understanding. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. I want to make sure we give out some information so that folks know how to find out more about you and definitely the book, uh, Destination of the Species, The Riddle of Human Existence, Michael Meacher my very special guest today. You can find out more about Michael. You can go to his website, www.michaelmeacher.info, and check that out. Uh, And I have one last question for you, Michael, and I want to thank you so much. I know that it's very early in the morning where you are, and I want to thank you for joining us here today. My question is, is this. What is your personal message? What do you want to leave the listeners, the folks that will be tuning into this and that have done so live and will be downloading it. What is your personal message for everyone today? I think my personal message, and it's now 3 a.m. in the morning, but I feel more lively than I've felt uh, <laughs> for most <laughs> of the day. Uh, I think my, um, my real message is uh, to think in reflection, in meditation, much more about the meaning of one's life. 
it is so easy to get caught up in the round of daily life and all the things that we have to do, to work, to earn a living, to look after a family and those around us. And all of that, of course, has got to be done. It's extremely important. But to leave time when one can think quietly and reflectively and deeply about one's life, uh, one's relationship with others and with the the, the state, the country uh, in which we live and what it means. Uh, I, I, I cannot too strongly express uh, the importance of thinking. What does the the wider landscape in which which we all share, in which we all live, what is it telling us? What does it mean? Because one can look on the surface and yet just not see it at all, like that Jan van Eyck painting. It's only when you look at it closely and think about the various component parts and see how they put together and think about the linkages uh, and listen to what other people are saying and to gain experience from them because we all are dependent on each other. Uh, that, I think, is the most important thing, to to give time for reflection and meditation, to deepen our own understanding and to make ourselves more valuable to our fellow human beings. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being on the show and for, uh, for me, such an inspirational conversation to have with you. I, too, it, although it's not three in the morning, I, I, too, feel completely energized and more awake right now than I have in a really long time. So thank you so much for joining us today. Well, Pat, thank you very much indeed. It's been a wonderful experience, and I'm really thrilled and delighted to have had the opportunity. I think it's a wonderful show, and thank you very much for having me on it. I hope you'll uh, keep the door open to come back. I plan to do it uh, at a time where it's not 3 in the morning for you, okay? (laughs) I certainly will. Thank you. All right. Thank you. I want to just let everybody know I have just been... Speaking with Michael Meacher, and for those of you that have tuned in late or have missed any part of this conversation, uh, boy, you're going to want to listen to the entire show. I have to tell you, I haven't been on a journey quite like this on radio in a long time. But more importantly, that's the journey that you all and, and I get to go on by reading his book, Destination of the Species, The Riddle of Human Existence. And please make sure that you check it out. Also, I want to make sure, again, I'll give you his website so that you can find out more about Michael. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of his blogs today talked about something I'm very passionate about, and that is breaking promises, why we do it, what it means, and what's the problem with trying to keep them, especially around the env- environment. But you can go to his website, michaelmeacher.info, uh, and check out the web blog and much more. A lot to be said about so many things in the world, and I hope that today, as you've listened to the show, that you've come up with some questions for yourselves, you know, questions on your own. Uh, and I know that many of you emailed me and you write me, and, and there's so much that you do question. What I love about being able to do this show and talking to people like Michael is I leave the conversation with so many more things to think about, and I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful that there are people like he that are causing us to really use more of our brains than we really use, but to also be responsible and accountable for putting the pieces together. 
And fortunately, someone like like Michael Meacher has been able to do quite a bit of that for us in his book. And so there's so much more that we didn't get to talk about, quantum entanglement for sure, uh, that I wanted to chat with him about. But also, who then are we? This is one of the, the chapters he takes us through and, and, and enables us to explore. And that's what I want to leave you with. Who then are you? In the conversation, in your daily life, who are you? And in the end, I hope that you come to a place of peace and harmony within yourselves. So I want to thank you all for tuning us in and turning us on on the Dr. Pat Show. It's been great to have you here. As I've said, we've got lots planned. If you want to find out more about us, go to drpatlive.com. And certainly, if you've missed any part of this, the archives will be up shortly. Again, remember who you truly are. I hope tonight you've heard some something from the conversations that have just caused you to scratch your head a little bit and say, what did they just say? Because that really is the good news. Start to question things, start to look at things, and start to get in that place where you're just a little bit uncomfortable with what's going on around you. All right, until next time, we'll see you next time on the Dr. Pat Show. Oh